0: a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us again, danproftshow.com, and uh, on social media, at Dan Proft Show, as well as Aunt Dan Proft. Got a great lineup on the program Uh, including uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who's coming up straight away, as well as Robert Verbruggen to go over COVID data a little bit, lies, damn lies and COVID data these days, and uh, Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch to talk about uh, their efforts to uh, counter the vote-by-mail zeitgeist, Uh, Soros-financed zeitgeist, I might add. But uh, we begin with just one of the most incredible statements I've heard so far, and I've heard a lot of incredible statements from The Cuomo's, the combination of Fredo on CNN and Andrew in the governor's office during the last four months. Andrew Cuomo talking about President Trump's COVID corruption. His COVID cover up. Andrew Cuomo, who's presided over the state with by far the largest death toll. By far the largest case count. This is what Andrew Cuomo had to say yesterday
3: president now says his own health officials are lying about the virus. His own CDC health officials are lying about the virus. Well, if the president is telling the truth, you know what he should do? He should fire them. He should fire them. If I said in this room, my health commissioner is lying about the coronavirus, you know what your first question would be? Governor, if he, you say he's lying, how do you not fire him? How do you keep him in charge of health policy if you say the person is lying? Because someone is clearly lying to the American people. And people are dying because of it. Trump's COVID scandal makes what Nixon did at Watergate look innocent. Nobody died in the Watergate scandal. Thousands of people are going to die in this COVID
2: scandal. Says the governor, whose state lost more than 32,000 people, 10 times the state of Texas with two-thirds of the population. Thirty two thousand people. He is the governor who, along with some other governors who underreported on this score, uh, his neighbor, Phil Murphy in New Jersey, Charlie Baker, in Massachusetts, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, sent infected people back into nursing homes. And Whitmer was doing it as late as the third week of May. And of course, we know that the less than one percent of the population, the American population, in long term care facilities represent 50 percent of the deaths. The most catastrophic decision Andrew Cuomo and those other governors made, that is the most catastrophic decision anybody has made throughout. In addition to these pressers for months where Andrew Cuomo, during the height of the outbreak in New York State and New York City, was working closely with praising President Trump for scrambling all the resources that were brought to bear for New York City and New York State, even when they went unused. It's just remarkable. But does he have a point on Tony Fauci? Uh, has that really been the president's undoing here is uh, as much as his attitude was to drain the swamp when push came to shove in the early moments here when he could have sidelined Fauci and others for their failure on testing in February. And that was really their point. That was he's right an infrastructure he inherited. That was the time to sideline those individuals, bring in people he knew with the same level of expertise, bringing people he trusted and he didn't do it. And now he's paying the price for more on this and so much more. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend, Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the author most recently of the case for Trump VDH. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, what about uh, Andrew Cuomo's uh, pronouncement about uh, Trump's COVID scandal and uh, the point he makes about, Hey, if if Tony Fauci isn't serving you well, if you don't think he's serving you well, then why is he sticking around?
4: Well, I mean, he, first of all, he lied. Trump never said that Tony Fauci lied. He just said that Tony Fauci's not always right. And then he gave a specific example. Right. He said he, he had conflicting evidence about masks, about the travel ban initially, about the transmissibility to humans, about cruise ships, about dating, about social. I could go on. And he did. And then he would go on to CNN and MSNBC and say something quite different than he did uh, on Fox or, or in the, on, from the public. So Trump didn't say you're a liar. He just said even Fauci can make mistakes, and that's was translated by Cuomo for political purposes. But the bottom line is that this is a this virus is. We know two things, and it's about all we know about it. One, it attacks people 60 and then more, 65 and then even more, 70 and on up. And then two. It's primarily a lethal virus in about five states. So if you take the population of Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York, just those four east Coast, they have about 11% of the population. They've killed almost 50% of everybody who's died in the United States. Right. And that's, that's almost entirely attributable, as you said, sending sick patients in fear that they were going to be short of hospital spaces, which didn't happen, into rest homes, which didn't want them. And wiped out a whole populations in rest homes, and then not social distancing and sanitizing in the critical weeks. There are mass transit uh, buses, train systems, and all four governors were culpable. And then, to a lesser degree, or maybe to a greater degree, the Michigan governor and Illinois. But so take away those six states, and for all of the hype about the southern states, they may have more cases because they're testing more, and there's a lot of young people who went out and violated the quarantines. But the deaths have not been nearly. In terms of deaths per million, what these states have, Cuomo's been an utter failure, and I think he's starting to see that his own state and, in particular, New York City, his signature city in the United States, is falling apart. And so, part of the strategy is to go on and blame Trump. He but, looks at the Real Clear Politics poll; Trump is down. He says, "I'm going to pile on. Nobody, this will help me." Right. It's pretty obvious what he's doing.
2: Right. I mean, no, it's a, it's a classic misdirection. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, but but how does Trump respond to though that sort of criticism coming from a lot of different quarters and not just Democrats, but uh, uh, frightened swing voters and swing states, too, it seems i it, it, does he need to make a pivot in terms of his communication and, and or his team when it comes to covid response, not only in dealing with the spike in cases in some states right now that you were just referencing but also in anticipation of another uh, bout of this in in the fall absolutely absolutely and i wrote an article yesterday about it. i think he needs to uh he
4: can talk about the past and his successes and he has every right in the world to be angry about Mueller and impeachment but that's time is over for that what he needs now to do is to talk about his future plans for the rest of the year and after 2021, and they are specifically dealing with these crises. Well, number one is he needs to say that we're gonna get a strategic reserve for pharmaceuticals, protective equipment, from everything from toilet paper to hand sanitizers, and we're gonna get a national body of people diverse, not just from the CDC or the uh, Institute of uh, Health, but we're going to get people from all universities and all companies and we're going to get a national definition of what is infection, what is an antibody, what, and we're not going to politicize it. And then we're going to get another group about quarantines, red quarantine, you know, uh, orange, green, all the way down like we did after 9-11. And then he needs one. He said, I, you know, now's not the time to, to raise taxes, but we're going to have to deal with a $30 trillion national debt. And well, maybe we'll have to get the Simpson-Bowles people back, but we're going to deal with it as soon as we get over this crisis. And then he's going to have to say, you know, the university was the incubator of this. We're not anti-university, but we're not going to subsidize this hatred of America. So we're going to start taxing, making income off these super $30, $40 billion endowments in the Ivy League, Stanford. they are going to have to be taxable, and we're not going to guarantee federal loans up to $1.6 Dollars and, and relieve all moral hazard from these universities that so promiscuously, promiscuously issue these loans without any responsibility uh, what happens when they're defaulted or when the students can't get jobs out of this sort of mediocre education and credential. So things like that he can do. I think he needs to talk about infrastructure, but infrastructure in a very radical, different way. And that model of high-rise living, mass transit, uh, dense population that was foisted on us by the Obama administration as the way the European model is going to be, you know, energy efficient, new green deal. That is a petri dish for the next virus. And China will send us another virus one way or the other. They, I, uh, they've gone radically different on that.
2: I want to pick it up there. You're sort of outlining the three prongs of uh, the re-election approach you argue Trump needs to take. And I want to uh, develop that a little bit more, delve into that a bit more Against the backdrop of uh, where we are with the Jacobins uh, roaming the, the hustings as well. Uh, more with Victor Davis Hansen from the Hoover Institution, author most recently of The Case for Trump, right after
5: this.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Victor Davis Hanson, he of the Hoover Institution, where he is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow, and uh, also the author of many, many books, noted historian, his most recent book, The Case for Trump. We were talking about uh, the uh, piece that the VDH wrote for amgreatness.com, in which he outlines three areas where Trump needs to pivot and provide sort of a tight messaging, one one bucket defending America, second bucket contact uh, and a plan for dealing with COVID-19 prospectively. And the third bucket is a restoration. Uh, what the future is going to look like for us, not Trump, for we, not me. Uh, but the question is, uh, what is the present on which he's operating? Where are we with the Jacobins? Where are we with the, the Vandals? And uh, VDH... <laughs> Uh, suggests maybe we're uh, we flatten the curve with respect to Jacobinism. There are only so many Road Warrior Antifa ensembles of black hoodies, black masks, black pants, and black padding before it all ends up like just another shrill teachers union meeting in the school cafeteria. <laughs> just a great, a great <laughs> lie, very enjoyable. Uh, so, uh, VDH, uh, you, do you think that we're seeing uh, uh, Jacobinism? run out of steam or is it just becoming less subtle as it insinuates itself into corporate boardrooms and professional sports leagues and everywhere else?
4: I think it's starting to peak. You can see it on at all levels. The CEO of Gloria food said, say what you want. I don't care. I'm not going to worry about you people. We're starting to see Hollywood actors and actresses worried that this new black lives matter is becoming almost a Neo Jim Crow, where they're going to start picking people on race uh, the in the professional sports league a lot of the black lives matter people have uttered some really vile anti-semitic things and exposed the hypocrisies of the whole professional sports league nba and nfl uh, attendance had been flattered down i think it's going to take a big dive in the fall and win a really big dive people are sick of it they don't like multi-millionaire non-diverse players lecturing them about their lack of virtue that's not a sustainable business plan. Um, the low-hanging fruit of all of these statue topplings is pretty much gone. So when they start going after a California mission that burned or Father Sarah or Grant or Frederick Douglass or Lincoln, they start to be caricatures of themselves. Roz Simone, the warlord, I don't guess he's back as a real estate renter now.
5: He's, <laughs>
4: he's not there with a chop anymore. You can start to see the, the – um, there are a few polls. I know the Real Clear Politics, that's heavily loaded to traditional media polls, is, is not very good for Trump. But there's other, the Demo- Democracy Institute and some of the Zogby, particularly focused polls show that, uh, in terms of Latino and Black support, Trump is probably doing better than Romney, McCain, or Bush have, and that's very important. And I think, uh, I think there's going to be a. I don't see how the the uh, news cycle gets much better for the uh, democrats because it's down it was pretty bad for trump with the virus the lockdown the rioting and now people are saying you know what this is unsustainable what's going on in chicago new york is a tragedy you can, these murders every single day that nobody will dare speak about aoc just sounds completely on the hinge and uh, yeah i think the economy will start slowly recovering the virus i think we're seeing a lot more exposures but and a lot more cases, but we're not sure whether that's not due to more testing and more non-symptomatic people. The deaths are slightly up some days, slightly down. Hospitalization is slightly up, but that may be because more people have gone into the hospital for long-delayed treatment. So I don't think the virus will necessarily be worse in a month. I, I think the... Uh, Lockdowns will be a little bit looser. They're, they're, they're not going to be able to maintain this politically motivated quarantine, I think, all the way to Labor Day.
2: But, 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 and then
4: Joe Biden, Joe Biden hasn't really come out. And when he comes out, things, bad things happen. And he's going to have to come out at some
2: point. But, uh, you know, you, you understand, of course, that people respond to incentives. And as Gerard Baker writes in The Wall Street Journal, all the incentives are for this to continue. He asks, can you name a single person in the media? who has suffered materially for saying hostile things about the president the past four years. In fact, there's no sure way to advance your career in entertainment, news, sports, literature, even business circles than to issue some well-rehearsed bromide on social media about the monster in the white house. As long as that's true, uh, are you suggesting that uh, that may be true, but it's to a rarefied audience that doesn't constitute a majority of Americans or that it's no longer true?
5: I
4: don't know whether it's true or not. I I live in a Hispanic neighborhood out here in Central California, 95% Mexican-American. I I imagine they voted about 40% at most for Trump. Mm -hmm. But the more I talk about people, they have a deep dislike for what they see on television. They don't like that whiny, nasal voice, pampered white Antifa. They're scared of the Black Lives Matter, and they're very... Hardworking people, and I just, and I, I, I see a lot of the people. They don't want, they don't dare want to speak about it. They don't dare want to get into an argument. I see it across, the, I see it even between suburban. Just the beginning of people who think, what am I going to do about 9/11? Who am I going to call? What am I going to do if I have to go to New York? I went to San Francisco. That place is chaos. That kind of stuff. I can't park my car in champs. It's all coming to a head. And if Trump can be very disciplined in the tweet. He's going to make an argument to that swing independent group that usually doesn't necessarily vote Republican and say to them, "It's not about me, it's not about Biden, not about Queen, not about Biden's memory left, it's about civilization or anarchy. Yeah. And I'm the only thing between you and anarchy, and you better understand that. And I, I think you can—if that message would be—that'll be effective.
2: I, I I agree with you. I wish he could say it that succinctly and just uh, rinse and repeat it with some discipline, because I think it would be effective. But but the the flip side of that, though, and you sort of tackled this in um, in the piece we were referencing earlier, there there is this sort of Trump exhaustion uh, among some otherwise reasonable people who say maybe if we get him out then things will relax. Uh, the temperature will come down. Now, we, you and I both know how appeasement works. It's provocative. It's not uh, de-escalatory in nature. Uh, but that's where some people are. That's what they think. And Trump has to disabuse those people who are reasonable of that notion, doesn't
4: he? Absolutely. And it's a brilliant strategy on the left because it's just 360 degrees 24-7. We're going to bring everything into the equation. Sports, uh, academia, Hollywood and we're going to just up the intensity to a way that we hadn't even experienced during Mueller or impeachment or 25th amendment or storming or Michael, we're going to really amplify it. And it's going to be reach critical mass, like taking out the uh, cooling rods on a reactor. And then we're going to get into dangerous territory. Then we're going to say to you, we'll, we'll make it all go away. Good old Joe Biden from Scranton is going to come in here and he knows how to get people to get along. And, There is no such thing as Joe Biden from Scranton. That person doesn't exist. And when he did exist, he wasn't very stable. He's a vessel, a wrath, a specter for a whole socialist, and that's a euphemism, socialist agenda. And and I think that's what the election is going to be determined about. Whether that suburban voter in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania wants to go in a fetal position, cover his ears and say, make it all go away. Or, you know what, I'm tired of this. And I may not like Trump, but you know what? The guy gets up every morning and he fights his stuff, and I'm going to vote for him. He is, that's what Trump's got to do.
2: He is Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, author of many books, a noted historian, most recently, The Case for Trump. BDH, thanks as always for your time. I uh, always appreciate your insights. Thank you. Take care.
5: There's no time left for you.
0: Dan Proft show on the Salem radio network.
2: Dr. John Torres, uh, surveying pediatricians for NBC news as reported on MSNBC as well to, to their chagrin. The peace survey pediatrician survey question. Would you send your kids back to school? Would you let your kids go back to school?
6: I will. My kids are looking forward to it. Yes. Period. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I can. (laughs) Without a hesitation. Without a hesitation, yes. I have no
7: concerns about sending my child to school in the fall.
6: I would let my kids go back to school.
2: So we'll uh, look forward to Dr. John Torres being fired from NBC News and those pediatricians having their medical licenses revoked. Uh, This is uh, consistent with uh, another clip, You Cannot Play Enough. This exchange from a couple of weeks ago between Senator Rand Paul and... Uh, Our infectious disease experts that we know and love, Dr. Tony Fauci, on reopening of schools.
8: Dr. Fauci, every day, virtually every day, we seem to hear from you things we can't do. But when you're asked, can we go back to school, I don't hear much certitude at all. I hear, well, maybe it depends. All of this body of evidence about schools around the world shows there's no surge. All of the evidence shows that It's rare. I mean, we've so politicized this and made it politically correct that the WHO releases that it's rare and you have a scientist up there honestly giving her opinion. What happens to her? She's blackballed and her, her report that she refers to is taken off the website. When you go to that, that scientist's speech and you, and you try to lick, clink on the lick, the WHO has now screened it from us because it said something that's not politically correct. That, guess what? It's rare for kids to transmit this. But I hear nothing of that coming from you. All I hear, Dr. Fauci, is we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't play baseball. Well, even that's not based on the science. I mean, flu season peaks in February. We don't know that COVID's going to be like the flu season. It might, but we don't know that. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't ban school in October. You might close some schools when they get the flu. We need to not be so presumptuous prom- that we know everything. But my question to you is, can't you give us a little bit more on schools that we can get back to school, that there's a great deal of evidence, and it's actually good Good evidence. The kids aren't transmitting this. It's rare, and the kids are staying healthy. And that yes, we can open our schools. Mr. Chairman, do I have a little bit of time?
1: To well,
0: I give you a little. A little that <laughs> was well that. over five minutes, but we'll thank you, go Senator ahead and answer the, Please answer the question. Yeah,
1: so very quickly, Senator Paul, I, I agree with a lot of what you say about you know this idea about people having to put their uh, opinions out without data, and sometimes you you have to make extrapolations because you're in a position where you need to at least give some sort of recommendation. But if you were listening and I think you were to my opening statement and my response to one of the questions, I feel very strongly we need to do whatever we can to get the children back to school. So I think we are in lock agreement with that.
2: All right. Uh, It's a political answer uh, that Tony Fauci is good at giving, but nonetheless, we're in lock agreement on getting the kids back to school and I take back to school to mean back physically in school. There just is no case for keeping the schools closed based on real-world data from two dozen Western nations. We, we focus almost exclusively on K-12 education in the, the government school system. What about in the private school system? That's important, too, and perhaps more important in many respects. Uh, And uh, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Darla Romfo about that. She's the president and chief operating officer of Children's Scholarship Fund. Uh, This is uh, founded about two decades ago by John Walton. Uh, Yes, that that Walton, the son of Sam Walton. And uh, Ted Fortzman, a New York investment banker, both of who have passed on now, uh, provides partial scholarships for low-income children in grades K through 8 to go to the school that best meets their needs. You know, like at the collegiate system where the money is attached to you, and you get to apply it to any school you want, public or private. Dala thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it.
9: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here.
2: So give us a a handle on um, how private schools are doing based on, uh, you know, so many of the private schools that you work with through the parents and the families that you help support in terms of the the kids' education. I know that you've written about this uh, recently in The Hill.
9: So there's two Two answers to that one is that in terms of online learning and pivoting to a new way of educating they did very very well our parents in fact are not give up give their schools like a 95 percent of them give them a four or five in terms of how well the schools did in educating unfortunately you know private schools rely on tuition and fundraising for their economic survival and everything has been hit very dramatically um, by the COVID virus. Our parents, about 80% of them, have lost income, either evenly split between half of them losing a job or having their hours cut. And two thirds of these schools that have been so effective in actually educating children are very worried about their financial viability in the fall. There's a tracker that the Cato Institute is actually doing, and it already shows that over 100 schools have indicated that they're going to close as a result of this pandemic. And 90 of those are Catholic schools. That's a huge loss to um, inner-city kids that are relying on those schools to get a good education.
2: When we come back with Darla Romfo, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Children's Scholarship Fund, we'll get her response to that reality. More right after this. It's a shame
10: the way you mess around.
0: Is the Dan Prof Show?
2: Welcome back. We're speaking with Darla Rampo. She's the president and chief operating officer of the Children's Scholarship Fund, a nonprofit that provides partial scholarships for low-income children, grades K through eight, to go to schools that best meet their needs. And before the break, we were talking about uh, the budget crunch in private schools, both on the family side as well as on the school operator side. And I want to get your reaction to that, Darla.
9: Well, just like they were very innovative and turned on a dime in in terms of offering the online learning, I can also attest to the fact that they're being innovative and creative and ahead of the curve in terms of figuring out how to reopen the schools in the fall. And I'm confident that most of them will, you know, if they're allowed to in the states that they're in, that they will reopen for live learning and that they will have plans that work to effectively, if they have to do some blended learning and have to close down intermittently, have a plan B, I'm confident that they can do that. And I think parents know that too. And that's why they are interested. And that's like an upside. But again, all of these families that are, they've been affected dramatically in terms of their income and, and, and by the disease as well.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. Reuters analysis last month found fewer than half of 57 public school districts they looked at were even taking attendance. A third weren't providing, were not providing required services to special needs students. By contrast, uh, you were reported recently in a panel discussion at the Manhattan Institute on the topic um, that uh, the schools you looked at were reporting 90 to 100 percent attendance. And what's the uh, differential? Parental involvement, I presume.
9: It's parental involvement, but it's also the caring and the connection that the school has. These are people that went the extra, extra mile. If somebody didn't show up in a class, they called them. Um, They, you know, they've had a lot of personal contact and, you know, we are founded on the premise that parents are the first educators of their children and that's the first. But they've chosen these schools because in their in, in, in taking carrying out that responsibility of educating their children, they realize that these schools can do the best job for their child. So it's a combination of the parental involvement and trusting the school and the school caring about the whole person, you know, body, mind, and soul, and m- going that extra mile, taking that extra initiative and step to make sure these kids are engaged. Well, it's, I, like it, I said,
2: it, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, it's, it's the par- it's the parents and the, the school being aligned, right? One is reinforcing yeah, the other.
9: Exactly. Exactly which is so important. And I'm never gonna diminish the fact that parents have a lot to do with what happens in a kid's education. Um, but I also think these schools help engage the parents and they don't cut them out of the process. They bring them into the process. And I think all of our education system would benefit so much from that if we could engage the parents and bring them into it and make them, we never talk about our scholarships even as a, a handout, as a hand up. We, we talk about you know the parents are the ones that are making the biggest sacrifice because our parents pay part of the tuition as well. So we're helping them do what they think is best for their child, and they may need a little more help this year.
2: And and, w- and with respect to the private schools, too, I mean, particularly uh, now you're talking about states uh, and big cities like L.A., San Diego, Atlanta, where they're uh, mandating online education. Uh, private schools, uh, do they just comply, or or do you see perhaps uh, some putting up a fight because they want their kids in the seat and there's no reason they shouldn't be in their seats?
9: I would say, say private schools will try to put up a fight. Um, I, I think that they really... You know, you know, like I said, there's some parents, I always think parents should be in charge of their kids' education. So, I mean, I'm, I'm for homeschooling, too. But obviously there are a lot of families for which homeschooling does not work, and it's the best situation for them is to be live, in person, in a seat at a school. And I'm confident that our private schools that we work with will do everything they can to make that happen in person this fall.
2: Uh, you mentioned the word nimble before, and I want to go back to that, because um, um, I, when I think of the Chicago public school system, for example, Uh, the word sclerotic comes to mind, not nimble. Um, Describe from the schools that you work with, that you survey, that you talk to, how they've been nimble in trying to uh, adjust in real time to the demands, both of families, the families they serve and the students they serve, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, the uh, mandates that are being imposed upon them from government.
9: Well, they very quickly figured out how to get the technology in place so that they could have instruction that was in in real time in many cases, and get the technology into the hands of the family so that they could participate in real time with classes and learning. It wasn't just sending home paper packets, It was trying to connect with kids in in real time every day and having teachers who were calling kids and being in touch with families. I mean, it was a a heroic effort, and it did take a week or two to transition into it. But, you know, nobody's going to say that it worked perfectly or that it's as good as what they could have done in person. But I think it's a pretty great thing to have 90% of your families say that they were happy with how the online instruction went. I mean, it's possible to do this. You know, these schools do what they do on a fraction of the cost. And this is not an indictment of public schools, because I know they have all kinds of regulations and all kinds of things. And I know there's many good hearted and well-meaning teachers that are in public schools and some public schools do great. Um, It's it's more about let's figure out what's best for the kids in all situations and respond to that instead of what's best for the adults or what's best for the system. And I think private schools, because they have less regulation and are closer to the actual situation, can just respond more quickly.
2: I mean, you, you mentioned how many schools have already announced their closing, 100 schools, 90 of those are Catholic. Um, I mean, are, are we at the point right now where it's a clarion call to uh, – Donors, those people that have resources to intercede if you want to preserve private education in this country, if you want to uh, preserve particular sectarian education in this country, uh, you need to step up and uh, provide more resources to Children's Scholarship Fund, to the uh, tax credit scholarship program in Illinois to uh, school choice programs around the country. The Supreme Court uh, struck another blow in favor of school choice recently. So there's opportunity here. But in crisis, it's going to require people that have the means to do more than perhaps they previously done. Is that where we're at?
9: Yeah, it's all of those things. It's, it's addressed the immediate needs of families and schools that are trying to struggle to send their kids to the private school, to, for the private school to stay afloat. It's if there's any further additional aid, which you may or may not agree with the idea of more aid, but if there's gonna be aid, more aid for education, an equitable portion of it should go to the private schools because they, they educate 10% of the kids. Um, If you believe that these institutions are important for America, important for our culture, important for our society, yeah, now is the moment to step up because there may not be, you know, one I once heard it said that there'll be school choice when the last Catholic school closes its door. That's not what we want to happen. Espinoza is a great case. Um, It doesn't doesn't remove all the political impediments in states that are run by uh, people opposed. It's not going to change progressive minds about the importance of having school choice. But in the states that have it, it's time to expand it. And, you know, it, philanthropists should invest in doing that. In states that have smaller school choice programs that aren't don't have a, a large enough dollar amount following the child or a large enough overall amount in the program to attract new providers, because this is an opportunity to attract innovative people who want to start new schools. And you can, there's five states right now that have big enough school choice programs where you can actually go start a program and have to not rely on philanthropy ongoing. So to invest in all of those things. Again, from the most immediate needs up the hierarchy, yes, it's the time to do that because there's, there's even though it's a dark, there's a dark cloud. Espinosa is a, you know, bright light shining through that cloud.
2: Darla, thanks so much for joining us. It. Thank you so much.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back Uh, in these times when uh, America is under assault from so many quarters, meaning our cultural institutions and the Jacobins and cowards who run them. It's always fun to hear from immigrants who came to this country across the generations and their perspective. Last week, we heard from uh, Gerard Baker, Wall Street Journal, Leo Leibovitz uh, from Tablet Magazine, and then uh, part of uh, Trump's. Latino Business Initiative, uh, his roundtable in Florida Friday that we didn't get to yesterday, I wanted to get to. uh, This was um, the uh, comments of Maximo Alvarez, who's a Cuban immigrant and uh, the proprietor of Sunshine Gasoline. Uh, The backstory on Mr. Alvarez, as told by him. Just
11: think that in 1961, as a 13-year-old, by myself, on my way to Spain. I wasn't even coming here. I arrived in this great country, and almost 60 years later, I'm sitting next to the President of the United States, talking about the American dream. The only country in the world, no other country in the world, that you can start a business from the trunk of your car. And within a very few years, with hard work, Commitment and all the core values that we learn from this very culture of ours, we can become very important to our future. We can become those people who make the next generation better than the one before. This is the only country. Why do you think you had to close the borders? because everybody in the world wants to come over here.
2: And uh, the immigrant stories that are the most compelling, the opinions that are the strongest, tend to be those who had to flee oppression in the lands from which they came. So Maximo Alvarez's father fled fascism in Spain, only to find communism in Cuba. Maximo Alvarez fled communism in Cuba, only to be concerned about what he's seeing in America right now. And he has some advice for Americans young and old, particularly those of the uh, Jacobin left.
11: Thank you very much. And I want to leave you with one last thing. Never forget about my dad, who only had a sixth grade education, but I think he was the greatest philosopher I ever met. He used to tell us how lucky he was because he was able to come from Spain to Cuba. And then he came from Cuba to the United States. And he saw me graduate from college, and that was the biggest prize he ever had. And he said, "Don't lose this place because you're not going to be as lucky as me. Because if you lose this place, you have no place to go." So with that, please keep that in mind, and please, people, explain that to our young people who are demonstrating out there. Don't be useful idiots. Please understand what's happening in our country. See so what happens to our parents and see what is happening to America today.
2: Don't be useful, idiots. Good advice. Far from the fake news,
0: he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show.
8: You are fake news.
0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com on the social media platforms, at Dan Proft Show and at Dan Proft. Reading in my uh, hometown paper, the Chicago Tribune, little FAQ on uh, voting by mail in Illinois and the Chicago Tribune, just a Midwest outpost of the D.C. Press Corps uh, echo chamber for The New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, and uh, among the questions, the last one is mail in voting more susceptible to fraud. The answer <laughs> from in an informational piece, no partisanship here nationally, efforts to expand mail in voting because of the coronavirus pandemic have been the focus of a partisan debate. With Republicans led by President Donald Trump opposing voting by mail based in part on unsubstantiated claims that it leads to fraud, numerous investigations have found no evidence that voting by mail results in increased voter fraud. Although uh, we do have a recently concluded election in Patterson, New Jersey, which is a real place in this country, which was a complete catastrophe marred by fraud associated with doing a mail-in election, vote-by-mail election. One in five ballots spoiled. The local chapter of the NAACP calling for a new election, and multiple candidates for city council in Patterson, New Jersey complaining about the legitimacy of the results against them. But okay, we have a case in North Carolina of a Republican operative for a congressional candidate who's under indictment for absentee ballot fraud. And that's associated with what? voting by mail. The Heritage Foundation keeps a handy-dandy database of uh, incidents of voter fraud. And do they represent a small fraction of uh, overall ballots cast? Is it uh, relatively an anomalous event in terms of prosecutions or concrete evidence of voter fraud uh, in elections? For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Tom Fitton. He is the president of Judicial Watch, and uh, Judicial Watch is, on this case, as they are on so many, the vote-by-mail election. Tom, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So um, uh, you uh, penned a piece for TheHill.com recently about uh, the vote-by-mail uh, push, and you argue that it would create chaos and distrust in November, not even if it necessarily results in fraud, but uh, chaos and distrust nonetheless. Why?
7: Yeah, i a straightforward analysis. Uh, when you take ballots away from the secure location like a polling place where you have government officials the rule of law prevails there in theory and just have people filling ballots wherever uh susceptible to intimidation vote line those sorts of things that you can't police outside the polling place in any serious way you obviously are undermining the integrity of elections and then besides the voting fraud you've got the real issue of just getting the ballots to the place the polling place in time or to election officials in time in a way that gets them counted and uh, I was just on Lou Dobbs earlier this week talking about an NPR story that found in some states 1% of the ballots were thrown out because they weren't postmarked in time. you have got a New York City case where uh, many ballots didn't have postmarks at all, so they threw them out or they're in danger of being thrown out. If you want your vote to count, show up and vote in person. If there's an emergency requiring you to vote by mail, obviously the law may make that available to you. But the idea that we're going to swap the system with millions of ballots and not have increased risk of fraud and undermine confidence in the elections as a result, uh, to me, is naive.
2: Well, and you always have these um, fun stories like uh, this week. Uh... A deceased family's cat a cat received a voter registration card in Atlanta. Voter registration application, I should say, in the in the mail. I mean, it's something out of like The Simpsons with Santa's Little Helper getting a credit card. Sort of the same thing, um, but but if you actually look at the voter rolls in a lot of states, you have particular uh, localities where there have these situations. Like for example, they have more registered voters than actual residents, and that does create right. uh, a mission field for the fraudster, whether or not they want to try and, and cultivate it or not, whether they want to try and harvest it or not, it, the mission field is there and voting by mail makes it easier to commit that fraud.
7: Yeah, and Judicial Watch has been investigating and litigating this issue for years, getting states to clean up the rolls. In Los Angeles County, for instance, they settled a lawsuit with us and they're in the process of cleaning up up to 1.6 million names. We just filed lawsuits in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Between those two states, we found nearly Two million extra names. So when you start mailing ballots, the people who were likely dead or moved away because the voting lists are bad, or as you point out, there are cats on them, uh, you, you're kind of increasing the opportunity and the temptation for fraud and abuse. And so um, uh, we need to be encouraging people to vote in person. And you know the the irony here is the left is, is pretends to be concerned about suppressing the vote. In my view, when you scare people, By suggesting they're going to die if they vote, which is which is a complete falsehood, that's suppressing the vote. Mm -hmm. And when you tell people to rely on the mails where their vote has a has an unacceptable risk of not being counted or stolen, that suppresses the vote. Those of us who want the rule of law, want people to show up at the polls on Election Day and vote, we are the ones. Who are in favor of the right to vote and expanding the franchise and protecting the franchise?
2: And it is interesting. Uh, there was a, a 538 uh, blog post uh, analysis uh, a couple of months ago that found no evidence that voting by mail gives advantage to one party over another. A pretty good analysis by um, Nate Silver and the gang over there. But yet, it it is curious that uh, George Soros's Brennan Center for Justice which is heavily funded by sources, Open Society Foundation, is spearheading a plan that calls for a universal vote-by-mail option for all voters. Uh, and so, you know, it, it does sort of—why would George Soros be so interested in this uh, to use one of his, uh, one of his uh, front organizations to advance this cause if he didn't think it was a political benefit? Because uh, George Soros is, uh, is almost solely interested in, you know, a political benefit to advance his leftist agenda. Well, let's be more specific. We had a lawsuit in California.
7: Uh, We represented voters and Darrell Issa, who uh, who is now running for Congress, uh, challenging Newsom's plan to mail on his own millions of ballots, including the people who are dead and moved away. The Democratic Party intervened. One of their arguments was we benefit from this process. Hmm. So they admit that this has a political benefit to them. They were using that argument to try to get in successfully to a court case. So, uh, you, know, you know, look, the left is, is generally aligned and arrayed in massive ways against all election integrity measures. They don't want us to clean up the rules. They oppose us. They're intervening in those cases I told you about. They uh, oppose voter ID. So when you have universal mail-in ballots, that means no voter ID. They would upend the voter ID laws in at least 35 states. And... Uh, word forbid we talk about citizenship verification how do we know citizens are actually voting as federal law requires well the only assurance is that they promise not to vote and then they fill out the form the register to vote they say i'm a i'm a citizen well you know there's effectively no way of checking that so there's no citizenship verification so they oppose basically every basic check that any regular american would want on making sure the elections are clean and there and why do they oppose that because i think they want to be able to steal elections because there's no reason to oppose it in terms of uh, it being an impediment to anyone voting reasonably. We're talking about basic rules to make sure elections are secure. And the fraudsters want to stop that.
2: And, and to your point, I mean, in 2018 in Orange County, those congressional seats, uh, Democrat the Democrats flipped that were held by Republicans. I mean, there was a well-publicized, well-documented uh, operation to do absentee ballot harvesting now it was legal in california as far as we know what was done but it wasn't in controversy what was done and so this would just allow them to scale that orange county operation nationally
7: well that's exactly right they want a national ballot harvesting effort uh in california it's completely out of control people can roam the streets asking for ballots and now they'll have millions of ballots to chase so california's elections will be a mess on election day no matter how you slice it our lawsuit. Uh, may prevent uh, dead people from getting the ballots Uh, but as you saw in New Jersey and elsewhere the ballots are going to go to people who weren't there or fraudsters and uh, it's just an opportunity for fraud and as you note North Carolina the temptation to cheat is going to be with both parties so Republicans may in theory be against ballot harvesting but they're going to try to play the game too because they're not just going to let that tool be used by just the other party so you need independent groups like Judicial Watch and Citizens we say, look, I know parties may have interests here versus uh, the citizens, and we want the elections to be fair and clean. We don't want to play the game of undermining clean elections by having crazed, mil- uh, turning over our election systems to uh, the post office and allowing widespread ballot harvesting. We, we, we've got we've
6: to oppose that as a matter of policy, in my view.
2: And as a matter of sustaining our republic, if we're going to have a belief in the legitimacy of election outcomes, that's, that's the overriding point I know that you made. Tom Fitton. Well Dan, president. I mean you know I look I to be clear, I fear we will have
7: chaos on election day because of this mail and ballot craziness. You may not know who won, and I use one advisedly mm-hmm. until weeks, if not months after election day. That's what I fear.
2: Tom, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. I- Welcome back. Uh, we switch gears here a little bit and talk about the school reopening. The case for reopening schools. The case uh, that uh, has no legitimate counterfactual. There is no case keeping schools closed there never has been and it's not a close call uh, let's start by just reframing a discussion from a couple of weeks ago because this clip should be heard over and over and over again because it, it includes the sainted tony fauci and one of the few on Capitol Hill who's been willing
8: to press him Senator Rand
2: Paul from Kentucky
8: Dr. Fauci Every day, virtually every day, we seem to hear from you things we can't do. But when you're asked, can we go back to school, I don't hear much certitude at all. I hear, well, maybe it depends. All of this body of evidence about schools around the world shows there's no surge. All of the evidence shows that it's rare. I mean, we've so politicized this and made it politically correct that the WHO releases that it's rare. and You have a scientist up there honestly giving her opinion. What happens to her? She's blackballed, and her, her report that she refers to is taken off the website. When you go to that, that scientist's speech and you, and you try to lick, clink on the lick, the WHO has now screened it from us because it said something that's not politically corrected. Guess what? It's rare for kids to transmit this. But I hear nothing of that coming from you. All I hear, Dr. Fauci, is we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't play baseball. Well, even that's not based on the science. I mean, flu season peaks in February. We don't know that COVID's going to be like the flu season. It might, but we don't know that. But we we wouldn't ban school in October. You might close some schools when they get the flu. We need to not be so presumptuous that we know everything. But my question to you is can't you give us a little bit more on schools that we can get back to school? That there's a great deal of evidence, and it's actually good, good evidence that kids aren't transmitting this. It's rare, and that kids are staying healthy, and that yes, we can open our schools.
1: Mr. Chairman, do I have a little bit of time?
8: Will I give you a little? That was well that. over five minutes, but we'll Thank
1: you, Senator go ahead and answer, Paul.
0: The, please answer the question. Yeah,
1: so very quickly, Senator Paul, I, I agree with a lot of what you say about, you know, this idea about people having to put their uh, opinions out without data. And sometimes you you have to make extrapolations because you're in a position where you need to at least give some sort of recommendation. But if you were listening, and I think you were, to my opening statement and my response to one of the questions... I feel very strongly we need to do whatever we can to get the children back to school. So I think we are in lock agreement with that.
2: Lock agreement with back to school. Okay, well, there it is. No matter how you interpret uh, what Fauci said, back to school, did I mean physically present? No, no, no. We're in lock agreement on that. Get back to school. Right. Joseph Allen, director of Healthy Buildings Program at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's absolutely critical that we get kids back to school, adding there are there are costs to children's physical and social well-being with ongoing remote learning from home. Countries in Asia and Europe have opened largely with avoiding large outbreaks, but experts note most other countries, community transmission rates of COVID-19 were low when schools reopened. Uh Uh-huh. So, uh. Why do we have the pronouncements yesterday from the L.A. school district, the San Diego school district, Atlanta school district that it's going to be online only? We know this is bad for children's physical and social well-being. We also know from Brown University study, from Washington University IHME study, from a Reuters analysis, that it's bad for their intellectual development, too. It doesn't work. If you want to rethink the way we do K-12 through 12 education in this country, I'm all for it. As we continue to run the school day, the same school day we've run since Harry Truman was president, in spite of all that we've learned about how kids get educated, that's because the public school systems are, generally speaking, not nimble. They are sclerotic, as I mentioned with when we spoke with Darla uh, Rumfo from Children's Scholarship Fund earlier in the show. You know, we still... A lot of places teach foreign languages in high schools, even though we know kids best learn foreign languages in grade schools. The school day should start later. We know this. We know that the sequencing of science classes should be a physical science class first, then chemistry, then biology. But what do most high school freshmen take? Biology. So we know these things, but they don't change because the school systems are designed for the convenience and benefit of the adults, and that's exactly what we have ongoing with teachers' unions driving the decision-making Particularly, but not limited to, the big urban school systems and the politicians that they own. And here's more data. According to the CDC, 30 children under the age of 15 have died from COVID-19. Nationally, in a typical year, 190 children die of the flu, 436 from suicide, 625 from homicide, 4,114, 4,114 from unintentional deaths, 30 under the age of 15. I mean, I hate to get into the macabre business of dead children here, but, I mean, you have to make some real-world risk assessments that are sane. In Chicago, my hometown, only two children under the age of 18 have died from COVID-19. We've had uh, 14 kids under the age of 18 murdered on the streets of Chicago in the last three weekends. Are you serious? In New York city, three tenths, three, one hundredths, excuse me, three, one hundredths of a percent of children under the age of 18 have been hospitalized for COVID seven and a half and 1 million have died. The death rate for those over 75 is more than 2,200 times higher than those for uh, who are under the age of 18. In Sweden, which kept schools open, only 20 children under the age of 19 have been admitted to an ICU. One has died. Those 20 children under the age of 19 represent six-tenths of 1% of confirmed infections, one death. Schools never closed, Sweden. A retrospective study of schools in northern France from February before lockdowns found despite three introductions of the virus into three primary schools, there appears to have been no further transmission of the virus to other pupils or teaching and non-teaching staff of the schools. Teens do appear to be more infectious, infectious, yet schools have opened in most countries, including Germany, Singapore, Norway, Denmark, and Finland. They haven't experienced outbreaks. Some schools in Israel had outbreaks last month after class sizes were increased, but most infections in both teachers and students were mild. Meanwhile... We know that the public school systems weren't doing a good job of taking attendance, of getting attendance, of, of providing homework, of grading homework, other than to say, well, hold you harmless, not much incentive to be productive. A third, according to the Reuters analysis, a third weren't providing required services to special needs students. That's the trade off you want to make? That's the trade off you want to make. I mean that is what is completely lost and has been from the beginning. The idea that there are real world trade-offs that have to be made, risk-benefit analyses that have to be done. And that we should base public policy on the worst case scenario rather than the most likely scenario. Keeping schools closed is without defense. This is Dan Prof.
11: I asked the guy why are you so fly, he said funky coma data.
0: Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Holman Jenkins, uh, writing the Wall Street Journal, people in a panic usually are not acting out of love for others or concern for the well-being of abstract groups defined by their skin color or other attributes. They're acting from a self-preservation motive. That's corporate America, and it's political virtue signaling right now. What's more, if you support the Black Lives Matter policy agenda, whatever it is, I'll tell you what it is, Holman, it's Marxism, you would be wrong to think corporate America is being co-opted by the money it feels obligated to donate. The co-opting will work the other way as Black Lives Matter related groups get used to having corporate money, right? The real, you want to do something real? You want to do something real? The best thing you can do for any child in the U.S., get him or her out of a high crime, high poverty neighborhood, any child. It's disproportionately black children, but it works for any child. He offers a fun thought experiment. What would happen in a few hundred census tract sized neighborhoods if there were no longer people exclusively, if they were no longer peopled exclusively by those who would leave if they could? What if places, they were places that people actually chose to live rather than were relegated to live? In the small fraction of census tracts around this country, that represents the uh, disproportionate share of poverty and violence. Uh, David Azerod over at Hillsdale signaling a a, a similar perspective with his piece uh, about uh, rejecting tribalism. The U.S. is acting like a budding totalitarian theocracy, one in which all must kneel at the altar of wokeness. Those who refuse are not punished by the state, but by corporate America and the media. They run the risk of losing their livelihoods and forever being forever defamed on the Internet. And thus, back to Jenkins. The self-preservation of the virtue signaling donation to Black Lives Matter for absolution, for an indulgence to continue to exist. To avoid the purge for now, similar to uh, that Harper's letter penned by or signed by a bunch of leftists, penned by leftists, signed by leftists. Uh, Back to Azeroth. How long until the accused of racism are denied, say, banking services? In the meantime, it is increasingly unclear whether uh, heretics who defend themselves against assault can expect equal protection under the law. And uh, what are conservatives doing about it? Azeroth argues that uh, we are fiddling while Rome burns. What of this uh, Nero brand of conservatism? Well, let's ask him. David Azeroth, assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's Van Andel Graduate School of Government in D.C. Professor, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
7: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
2: Uh, Good morning. And so uh, your critique of conservatives' response to uh, what uh, we're all seeing and describing, uh, that it it, it is, uh, as I said, as, as you wrote, fiddling while Rome burns. How do, how do you mean?
7: I mean, you can count on the fingers of one hand the prominent conservatives or Republicans who have forcefully denounced Black Lives Matter and Antifa, not just saying, you know, the violence is bad, but opposed the moral claims, the rioting. Uh, it's mostly been silence or actually going along with it. And the peak expression of that for me is Senator Mitt Romney, who was marching with Black Lives Matter. I mean, this, I don't need to remind you, is the fellow who the Republican Party nominated in 2012. And I do not think he's representing the views of his constituents in Utah. It's uh, and it's also entirely foolish as if they're not going to come from him one day, as if there's any way to appease this mob. Yeah, they may not come for him first, but there's no limiting principle to what they're after.
2: Uh, You uh, write in your piece in The American Conservative about uh, beyond conservatism, the um, new right, which has no name as of yet, is anchored in the realization that the conservative project in America today is fundamentally a counter-revolutionary one. We lost, they won. Painful as it is to admit, we are no longer, we no longer feel at home in our own country. In this progressive theocracy in which all must worship at the altar of wokeness, conservatism, if one can even still call it that, is more about overthrowing than conserving. Uh, Is that, uh, is that necessary? I mean, is the, uh, it it being a counter-revolutionary movement that's a recognition of the necessity of the age. It's not necessarily uh, a desire philosophically. Is that fair?
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have it's not my preferred outcome. But if you look at the state of America today, if you look at the enormous success of the various waves of progressive leftist and liberal revolutions over the 20th and 21st centuries, you must admit that the country has been fundamentally transformed. I mean, the authoritative norms promoted in the most powerful institutions across the country are progressive ones. Uh, People who still believe in traditional Christianity, who are deeply patriotic, are more and more reluctant to express some of their views in, in, in public. They are the ones who are getting punished. All of the pieties that the regime enforces are those of the left. Now, I think the cause is not lost because I suspect there's a majority of Americans who still cling to the old America or the best aspects of it at least the idea of equality under the law of meritocracy of religious liberty of free speech of a second amendment but they're a besieged silent majority and what the conservative movement needs to realize is that we're not really in the business of conserving we're in the business of doing what the left did which is marching through the institutions, regaining institutional power and reshaping the regime i mean the end goal would be our pieties are once again authoritative
2: well, there are some conservatives not ready to be counter-revolutionaries. And when we come back with Professor Azarad, I'm going to offer pushback from David French, get his response. More right after.
0: Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back. We're speaking with Hillsdale professor David Azarad, And uh, before the break, we were talking about the need for a counter revolution before we can be conservatives again, reestablish the things that we want to conserve. David French, on the contrary, argues that uh, look, today we have more religious liberty than we did 30 years ago. Um, he uh, suggests that uh, what we're really seeing is um, Christians losing political power even at the same time as our religious liberty. Has expanded, and so we need to cop to that because uh, sometimes we haven't exercised political power very judiciously or even handedly. And so um, you, we, there's a distinction to be made between the religious liberties we enjoy, which are more pronounced than they were 30 years ago, he argues, and the political power that we don't.
9: I mean, look,
7: the Supreme Court has thrown the religious right, uh, a handful of bones with some decisions that protect religious liberty, and uh, he seems to think that that's cause for celebration. I don't, because I see the overall culture becoming more and more hostile, and we have a setup right now where we do have some sort of a progressive theocracy. It's just we've carved out some spaces and said, okay, churches are exempt from this, But let's be honest, how long can the situation last? And then also, what about Christians who are not running churches? What about Christians who are running schools or bakeries or who are photographers? They're not being protected. So you have a very dangerous situation, and French is oblivious to this, where the overall culture is deeply hostile to, for example, the Christian teaching on marriage or on sexual morality. And for now, the courts, has given some, I consider them, temporary exemptions to religious institutions. But I think the long-term trends are not good. And we all know that the court can change on a dime, as if there's any consistency in the Supreme Court. And you'd have to be foolish as a conservative to place your long-term trust in the vagaries of the Supreme Court.
2: Well, and um, a friend of mine who works at Touchstone Magazine responding to French— Uh, David French argues that the little sisters of the poor have more religious liberty today than they did 30 years ago for winning a lawsuit that no human being on planet Earth would have brought against them 30 years ago. So (laughs) I think that's a really good point Uh, is saying something about the culture. Here's another argument I hear uh, in defense of uh, things aren't as bad as you think. And I'm not looking for things to be bad. I'm just observing and trying to understand them. But are are we a little bit of uh, some conservatives? Are we are we fish who don't know we're in water? The the society is more tolerant than you think because we're susceptible to the availability heuristic, you know, increased uh, uh, mistaking the increased uh, ease with which we can recall a few noteworthy cases for increased frequency of such cases. That's one contention. And the other is that uh, social media Uh, The local is now global, so we're hearing about more problems, not because there are more, but we have access to information from all over, so we hear it more. How do you respond to those arguments?
7: I mean, it's easier for us to hear about bad news and to uh, work ourselves up. And yeah, you definitely have an echo chamber phenomenon. That being said, if you dispassionately and calmly and in a scholarly way assess the trajectory of the country, just say since the 1960s, the elite institutions, and you do a comparison 50 years ago to today, and you look at the overall trends, you look at the opinions of millennials, of Generation Z people, you look at the next generation that will take over the universities and the corporations, I don't think that this is a case of being in an echo chamber. I mean, the elite institutions in America are all pushing woke social justice. They either do it out of sincere belief, because remember, people who run these institutions come from our universities, and our universities are madrasas for identity politics. Yes. Or they do it, I think, because they're afraid of their employees, afraid of their consumers. But this just shows that they realize that the moral climate is such in America that you don't want to offend the pieties of the left. And so I, I don't think this is a case of uh, getting all worked up over nothing. If anything, and I would love to be proved wrong. I mean, have me back on 30 years from now on the show and, and play the clip. I, I, think, it, I think it's only going to get worse.
2: Well, I, Because yeah.
7: they, 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 they display no magnanimity after their victories. I mean, look at a Burgerfell. They win on gay marriage. What do they do the next day? They stopped going after the bakers, the florists, the photographers. I mean, can't you leave these people alone?
2: No, this yes. is a, a right.
7: vengeful. They want yes. to punish Middle America. Wait. There's no magnanimity,
2: right? Wait till uh, the reckoning comes for Trump voters, if uh, if uh, he is to not win re-election. For those who think that they're somehow immune. I, I, something else, though. Going back to beyond conservatism, then. So, um, what are the institutions that should be funded? You have a lot of wealthy conservative donors. Um, Should we stop funding middling think tanks? Uh, uh, Should we be funding institutions and individuals who are unapologetic, either from an academic perspective, like Hillsdale College and its faculty where you're on the faculty uh, and other institutions? It's not just Hillsdale. And 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 have a more uh, strategic approach where there's a division of labor, but there are certain common. Uh, more rays about the approach that needs to be taken to battling the left. And it can't be the Mitt Romney or, frankly, the American Enterprise Institute approach to the left.
7: I, I could not agree more with any proposal to send more money to help. Well, of course. I, I yes, that's, of course. That's, yes. That's a yes right. Idea. But I, I would tell your listeners, look at the last three months when America went through a very serious crisis and things got very bad. How did the institutions you support or you admire respond? Did they keep quiet? Did they throw fuel to the fire? Or in the case of, say, the Claremont Institute in California, Hillsdale College, did they put out strong statements denying that America is fundamentally racist? I mean, rejecting the, the foundational bedrock assumption of Black Lives Matter, the 1619 Project, the Academy, the elite, so on and so forth. I would look for institutions that are deeply countercultural in the best sense of the term, that had the moral courage to deny that America is a fundamentally and systemically racist country at the moment when it was hardest to do so.
2: That's a great way. That's a great question, a great way to analyze all these institutions and individuals. I love it. That's very good. David Azarad, assistant professor and research fellow at Hillsdale College's, and Andal Graduate School of Government in D.C. Professor azra thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Yesterday's Thank you.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back, and uh, just picking up on our conversation with uh, Professor David Azarod from Hillsdale, uh, assessing who did what when it really counted. What what did institutions do? What did individuals do against uh, the zeitgeist of our time, the, uh, the, the nefarious aspects of the zeitgeist of our time, the cowardice, the... Failure to abide obligations. We've talked a lot about uh, the cowards and those failing to abide obligations and those peddling fear and madness. Well, here's an example to the contrary. Let's highlight some of the good examples, too, in the hopes that they're replicated. Why I'll be on campus this fall. It's an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Professor John Hasness who is a ethics professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business and Georgetown Law School. Georgetown University has given all its faculty, including me, the option to teach in the classroom or remotely via computer this fall semester. Even though my age places me in the high-risk category, I've elected to teach in person. I feel I have an obligation to do so, an obligation to do so. COVID-19 is a fact of life. There is no alternative to learning to live with the risk of infection, as generations before us lived with similar dangers. Oh, historical perspective. Novel from an academic. My father used to describe what it was like living with the risk of disease when he was a boy before antibiotics. My older relatives told me what it was like living with the risk of polio before the Salk vaccine. COVID-19 is part of our environment. The only options we have are to take reasonable precautions and get on with life or to hide from it. There's a choice. Reasonable precautions and get on with it or hide from it. Teaching university and law students doesn't qualify as an essential service, writes Professor Hasness. But I wouldn't be a professor if I did not believe there was a significant value in higher education. Given what the younger generations have done for me, I believe I have a responsibility to give them the best learning experience I can, and that means being in the classroom with them. I don't believe the risk of teaching in person is an unreasonable one. In my opinion, Georgetown University is exercising an unreasonable amount of care to protect its students, faculty, and staff against the virus, particularly if you consider the historical context, eh, Professor?
5: Hmm.
2: It's important to be on campus, he writes. I've taught at Georgetown for many years, hope to continue teaching there for many more. For me, missing one year in the classroom is not much of a sacrifice, but my undergrad students have only four years in college. My law students only three years in school. I have clear memories of how personally meaningful and fleeting those years are and how emotional growth, how much emotional growth and character development takes place through interactions with classmates and faculty. I understand why my colleagues, especially those in high-risk categories, would choose to teach remotely. But when classes start up again in August, I will be at the podium. Well, you're a a fine example, Professor Hassness. I hope some at Georgetown and uh, others in academia who read your op-ed or hear of it choose to be uh, similarly obligated. Obligation, I like that.
0: the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: You are fake news.
0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Boy, knock me over with the feather. Uh, The Chinese COVID-19 cases have declined more slowly than government figures disclose. The Chinese being less than forthright with us. By the way, you know who's actually done a good deal of flacking for the Chinese? In a sense, it's been subtle, not formal. Tony Fauci. There's a... um, Good piece by Angela Cotavia at amgreatness.com. He is the uh, uh, former academic at Boston University. He's the man credited with the uh, term ruling class. We've had him on the show before. Uh, he um, he points out sort of how Fauci massages some issues. For example, uh, a reporter asked Fauci if he agreed with Trump that the Chinese have not been fully forthcoming about the scope of the pandemic. Fauci answered that all the, although the Chinese had lacked candor in previous years, this time they had turned over the sequence of the virus. via comments, spoken like a wily swamp reptile. His words were factually correct. The Chinese had turned over all they knew about the virus's sequence, namely its genetic structure. But the reporter and the audience neither knew nor cared about that. They were interested in the Chinese government's misrepresentations of the virus's contagion, fatality rate, and so forth. For more on the Chinese, the Chinese communists, of course, is who we're talking about, those in charge of the Chinese government, President Xi and his gang of communist thugs. We're pleased to be joined by Wei Fong Zong, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Wei Fong, thanks for for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you for having me. And good morning to you, Dan and Amy.
2: Good morning. And so uh, why don't we start with uh, your data crunching on uh, the COVID-19 numbers in China uh, the infection number of cases and associated data, and uh, why they're underreporting uh, is uh, important to us in the West.
12: Now, why
10: they're importing is something uh, quite obvious because they are, not, uh, they are always not very truthful about their numbers. And that's important to us because it matters to how to expand uh, our knowledge about what the Chinese government is up to and uh, what it's going to do next, because uh, the U.S.-China rivalry is going to uh, stay with us for decades, if not centuries. And so whether, whether or not we know our opponent very well matters uh, to a great deal.
2: And, and so uh, give us a sense of uh, what you, uh, how you come to the conclusion that the cases are declining more slowly than the Chinese communists are disclosing.
10: Absolutely. So we, over the past few months, my team and I have built an artificial intelligence program that tries to answer the question of how bad the pandemic really was in china as opposed to the numbers the government the chinese government uh, was telling us and we do that by simply monitoring the chinese propaganda machines the national newspapers called the people uh, people's daily which is the mouthpiece just like the chinese uh, china's version of uh, Pravda. and the reason that might actually work is because words sometimes they speak louder than numbers if the numbers are number fake but then you know, it's easy for a government to lie about numbers. They just, you, they just, You just uh, lie about the numbers. But when the government has to address the public on a public health crisis for days and weeks, it, in the words, sometimes they, they gave away the truth. Right? When they want people to stay at home, they shut down Wuhan. When they shut down Wuhan, for all we know, the entire nation was only reporting about less than six, fewer than 600 cases. But why do you shut down a city with 11 million people for simply 600 fewer than 600 cases in the entire nation? Right, and so this is how we came to by monitoring the word, we we saw a declining severity in how they use the words over time after since March. But the decline is much more slowly than the decline of the official
2: numbers. You did a little bit of a uh, you did a, as part of your write up a comparison between the response to COVID, the Chinese Communist response to COVID, and the Chinese response to SARS back in 2003? And um, uh, what was it you gleaned from the uh, comparative analysis?
10: So that kind of comparisons are very useful in the sense that uh, what happened before during SARS gave us a benchmark of the wax and wane, so to speak, of language, of what typically the government would say when the cases are rising and what they would say when cases are falling, when new cases are falling. And so when I said it, uh, in, terms, in, in this episode during COVID-19, when when it shows that it declines more slowly, it means that even uh, even when the official numbers are drastically declining, the government is using words when during SARS when the case numbers were still very high. And so uh, back in SARS, language went down with the numbers more consistently than this time. This time, the language didn't really go down with the numbers, and so which means that they might be lying even more. So they might be lying uh, back in SARS, but this time, chances are they're lying even more than they did.
2: Do you see, uh, I mean, I know you haven't done an analysis in this, but I mean, just in terms of you know, sort of the tone and tenor, you get sort of a feel for it. It's a little bit of art in addition to, to artificial intelligence. Uh, similarities in some of the propaganda, some of the rhetoric that you hear from politicians in this country with respect to uh, COVID-19. I mean, just in terms of sort of the, the moving of the way that we keep score. First, it was uh, hospitalizations and death and flatten the curve. Now it's just focused on the number of infections, regardless of the severity. That's That's a significant change. And yet, you still hear sort of the, we're all in this together, stay uh, uh, stay together inside, and all these various hashtag campaigns. I mean, isn't this uh, just a softer form of the same sort of state propaganda that you see in China?
10: Well, uh, I wouldn't go too far uh, so far as to say that what we see in the U.S. is the same propaganda we saw in China. Um, I mean, political communications, though, the words uh, we see in, in media, they are in nature... They in nature have the function to change people's opinions and hence more to, uh, change people's actions. So in that sense, media is as, uh, just as powerful in the U.S. Uh, as they are in China. But I haven't done the same analysis you were alluding to using the U.S. data, uh, but I, I do want to point out that all the programs we did under the Policy Change Index Project are open source. So anyone who has U.S. media data who wants to uh, plug the algorithm in to see what they find are free to do so.
2: Well, that'd be I mean, it'd just be it'd just be interesting to look at. I mean, the way that you track some of these uh, uh, rinse and repeat lines that you hear over and over from politicians you know, across the country. Um, it's it just as interesting, as you say. I mean, we have the sense uh, in America sometimes that um, things that are bad that are happening in other countries, manipulation that occurs in other countries. Well, that just doesn't occur here because we're a free society. And um, I, I think that's uh, terribly naive. I agree.
10: I agree. So not to say that it doesn't happen in the U.S., but it does, it does require doing the, same, um, doing the same analysis. It does require to be, it requires a researcher to be careful in terms of selecting what data sources
5: sure. uh, they are
10: going to use for the analysis. Right? So in China, it's easy because they have a, a product like newspaper. But then in the U.S., if you were to study politicians or to study the president, then you have to choose a different outlet, perhaps you know well, media yeah. or some, some other uh,
2: platform. You could spin a wheel and pick almost any Beltway outlet and uh, treat it the same way as the People's Daily. But uh, I digress. Um, I'm going back to uh, China, actually, um, it seems to me a great illustration of this, in addition to your illustration here in terms of President Xi's handling of COVID-19 and the, the uh, uh what your AI tells us about the language and uh, what that may mean about their policy direction. Uh, I, I go back to this documentary, "One Child Nation," about China's just ghastly and uh, and and disastrous one child policy for thirty five years, up until it changed to a two child policy a couple of years ago. And the 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 I mean, in addition to just the the inhumanity of it, one of the things that really comes across in that documentary is the 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 the, the uh, state propaganda not just through the newspapers but through tv too and it's all the, the theatrics of it and and the village's participation in these uh in, in, these these art productions in support of one child in support of the one child nation policy it, it was remarkable how comprehensive it was and how many different forms it took it wasn't just one newspaper it wasn't just on your tv screen you were essentially compelled or uh, or cajoled into being a par- participant in skits in service of the state's policy.
10: Right. So uh, you're you certainly right. And I think, so I, I do want to point out, though, that the phenomenon you, you were just uh, mentioning, it's not that Americans or American policymakers did not know that, uh, that from decades ago. So we, we know that uh, it's an it's a authoritarian regime with so very heavy state control. The I think what has driven... And much of our China conversation these days was that we didn't expect that China did not change a bit throughout all this time that we tried to integrate China into the global economic system. So what I think what turns out to be not quite correct was that engagement we thought would change them, but it didn't quite as much.
2: No, no, it didn't. Uh, Wei Feng, Song, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you very much for having me. Take care.
0: seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft
5: Show.
2: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, turns out your cause doesn't even have to get the DC Press Corps stamp of righteousness. In order to have a mass gathering that doesn't result in a spread of COVID-19, National Bureau of Economic Research paper on the Trump rally in Tulsa. Dr. Joseph Sabia, the point person from San Diego State University, along with a bunch of other academics. The conclusion of their look at uh, the first mass campaign rally following the COVID-19 outbreak in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 12, uh, which attracted six to 12,000 individuals to the indoor Bank of Oklahoma arena. We find little evidence that COVID-19 case growth grew more rapidly in Tulsa County, its border counties, or in the state of Oklahoma than each's estimated estimated counterfactual in the three weeks following the campaign rally. Difference in difference estimates further provide no evidence that COVID-19 case rates, case rates grew faster in counties that drew relatively larger shares of the residents to the Trump event. We conclude that offsetting behavioral responses to the rally, including voluntary closures of restaurants and bars in downtown Tulsa, increases in stay-at-home behavior, so on and so forth, may be important mechanisms. Oh, boy. We know that uh, Black Lives Matter rallies and uh, other uh, enterprises of the left are immune from COVID-19, but I'm sure this will shock the D.C. press corps to uh, learn from this paper. There's no evidence that the Trump rally is a super spreader either. Uh, I want to go back to what Johan Giesecke said in an interview back in mid-April. Johan Giesecke, former top epidemiologist for the country of Sweden, how Sweden uh, determined the approach that it was going to take to this outbreak back at the beginning of the year. The main
10: reason is that we or the Swedish government decided early in January that the measures we should take against the pandemic should be evidence-based. And when you start looking around for the measures that are being taken now by different countries, you find that very few of them have the shred of evidence base. But one we know that's known for 150 years or more, and that is washing your hands is good for you and good for others when you're in an epidemic. But the rest, like border closures, school closures, social distancing, there's almost no science behind most of these.
2: No science. So you just fill in the blanks with politics. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Robert Verbruggen, policy writer for National Review, nationalreview.com. Robert, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, for Thanks for having me. Uh, is that fair, what uh, Gesecki and, and frankly, uh, but particularly relevant, what Gesecki said, the question he asked, how are they going to get out? Did they think about how they're going to get out? Well, as we're playing a lockdown whack-a-mole with uh, COVID-19, doesn't his question... Um, isn't this question all the more compelling?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, we, we were facing m- months ago, we had a, this brand new disease, um, you know, very dangerous. It's killed more than 100,000 people. Um, and we took drastic measures to try to get it under control. Um, but but the goal of that um, should always have been to transition to a different way of controlling the, the virus, Find find a way that we can get back to a normal life. Um, without without letting it spread again, and I think it's fair to say that we didn't do a great job of that, and and we're having trouble with this question of you know, what do we do now? Um, we can't just keep things locked down indefinitely. We, we're we're going to destroy the economy if we do that. The longer you keep going with this, um, the more you know, the, the costs just keep getting worse and worse and worse with every every passing day. So we're we're in a very bad spot right now, where the the virus is taking off again, at least in, in some states. Um, and yet, we're, we're, we're done with lockdown. We're sick of it. We've been, been doing this for months now. We've been having you know, all of these restrictions and uh, you know, sometimes quite, quite draconian restrictions for, for quite a while now, and people are sick of it, and they're not complying. Um, and, and yet, we haven't figured out that other way. You know, how do we get back to, to a regular life? while still keeping the virus under control.
2: One of the things that uh, I'm really fed up with, maybe more so than others, is these Faustian bargains we hear from our public health professionals who've lost a lot of legitimacy based on their uh, having to retrench their earlier remarks on a range of topics. So when uh, CDC Director Redfield says, uh, just six months of wearing masks and we'll beat this thing, Uh, you know, I'm sorry, but you've changed the way we keep score. You've moved the goalposts, uh, the way we play the game too many times for me to say, "Okay, uh, I'll, you know, I'll fall in six months of I'll wear a mask 24-7 and then we're going to beat this virus. That that, uh, first of all, that's not true. I don't believe that. Secondly, uh, I don't believe that that's the metric that we're actually going to use.
6: Right. I mean, it's it's. I mean, on, on the one hand, you can sympathize with the, the public health experts because we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before. They're in uncharted territory, and the evidence is always changing, and you know, their recommendations have to change with the evidence, um, but I think a lot of them have fallen to a lot of really stupid and really bad temptations. You know, one is just being more confident than they should really be. Um, another one, obviously that we saw with the, the black lives matter protest is letting their own personal politics creep into what they're, what they're saying. I mean, I think they lost a lot of credibility when they said, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and protest. This is important. Um, right. I, I mean, how, how do you take them seriously after they say that?
2: Right. And then, but then also too, I mean that they're, they, they help to fuel uh, panic when they talk about uh, cases In not with with without context, these are supposed to be the experts. Experts provide context to say, for example, yes, we have an increase in cases in Florida, let's say. But the good news is that the median age of the infected has dropped 30 years, and we know that the fatality rate and the hospitalization rate for someone in your 30s is much different than it is for someone in your 60s. And we have this much capacity, and we're projecting this rather than just saying, yes, I'm very concerned about the case spike in Florida and letting people's minds run wild with that.
6: Yeah, no I agree I think it's very uncertain at this point what this increase in cases is going to mean for us eventually. There's there's some uptick in in the deaths now that looks very troubling, but there's there's a lot of debate over what it means. Um we really don't know yet. Um and and they need to be clear about that. You know, but at the same time I think the the case the rise in cases has been dramatic enough that we should be pretty pretty worried about it and, and thinking through, you know, what are we going to do about this? when we're sick of lockdown and, and we might be having, you know, another outbreak on our hands here.
2: Right. And but, but then but then again, too, here we go. In terms of like, you know, even handed the standards, what we've learned, what we know we can't do again. I have yet to for them to say uh, whoever did it, that don't care. And by the way, there were uh, there was at least one Republican in addition to Democratic governors. But we know less than 1% of the population is responsible for 50% of the fatalities. We know that 10% of the population, uh, New Jersey, New York, and Massachusetts, responsible for 42% of the deaths. And we know all three of those governors introduced infected people back into long-term care facilities. That was a catastrophic error. We cannot do that again. We have to make sure everybody understands that uh, for the rest of this first wave, for a potential second wave in the fall. Nobody says anything like that.
6: Yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely important right now, especially because we're so we've been locked down for so long that we need to focus on the areas where it's absolutely most important and nursing homes are right at the top of that list because that's you know it's basically the two things you don't want together which is you know elderly people who are really susceptible to this thing and you know living in close quarters, you know really big um you know, sort of a, a really big social networks that, a, that the virus can spread through. Um, so I think that, that this next wave of uh, our, our fight against this that really has to be focused rather than these broad sort of everybody, you know, in the entire country stay at home kind of thing.
2: He has Robert Verbruggen, policy writer for National Review, NationalReview.com. Robert, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
6: Thanks for having me. Take care.
5: You too.
0: The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
2: Bit of a skeptic about uh, Kanye West's new birthday party, his independent bid for president of the United States. So he announced, "We'll see what he does." To act in furtherance of such a candidacy, it is worth noting that the filing deadlines to be an independent candidate in states like Indiana, Texas, Maine, New Mexico, North Carolina have passed. Uh, According to Forbes, um, the uh, rapper-slash-sneaker mogul is ineligible for as many as 187 of the 538 electoral votes up for grabs. So it doesn't look like a, a particularly compelling independent path to the presidency. I'm sure he doesn't believe that there is one. There must be a point to this. Maybe the point would be, per this inter- interview he gave to a Forbes magazine, maybe the point would be, and would, wouldn't this be a service to the nation, to expose the mythology behind Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger. Planned Parenthoods have been placed inside cities by white supremacists to do the devil's work, said Kanye West. Oh, boy. Those uh, champagne socialists on the lakefront and in the leafy suburbs aren't going to like that, but you're not allowed to criticize Kanye West lest you open yourself up to be criticized as a racist, right? Difficult, complicated times for the lobotomized left. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Daniel Flynn senior editor of The American Spectator, author of Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, what a, uh, uh, what a, a, a service to the nation, as I said before. What a moment that could be if Kanye West is the one who makes uh, a, a wide swath of America wake up to the disgraceful, despicable, ghoulish, ghastly history of Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood.
12: Yeah, it was amazing to me that, uh, you know, in this moment in history where you have people tearing down statues and defacing all sorts of uh, memorials, that Margaret Sanger, who has a bust in the National Gallery of the Smithsonian, and in my hometown of Boston, there's a statue of her with her her mouth being muzzled. Um, You know, that is... um, uh, or, or I'm sorry, it has a statue of her with, with a blindfold on her eyes, I believe, or some, one or the other. Anyhow, you know, there's no movement to, um, to to remove any of these public honors of someone like Margaret Sanger. And to the contrary, when Kanye West spoke up about her her misdeeds and her, you know, the words that she chose, uh, you know, he was jumped on by not only the entertainment press and music press but the mainstream press, as someone who you know uh, said something dishonest and had no grounds in, in the facts. But you know, when I went through her papers uh, at the Library of Congress about 20 years ago, you know, I've, I've had some shocks looking at some things. I don't know that I've ever had a shock uh, looking at in, in, in the archives of any institution as I had when I looked through uh, Margaret Sanger's papers all those years ago.
2: Oh, by, you mean like the sterilizations that she promoted and uh, other eugenic, uh, uh, other uh, uh, other procedures consistent with a a commitment to eugenics?
12: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest one of all, the biggest shock was, you know, she had something called a plan for world peace, um, which she delivered as a speech in 1932, and then she later released as an article. She thought so highly of it, she released it as an article, and in that plan— Um, she talked about a choice that they would give between 15 and 20 million Americans. It's about a sixth of the population at the time. The choice would be between uh, sterilization or segregation on a farm for the period of their entire lives. In other words, a life sentence in a concentration camp or to be sterilized um, by the state. And, you know, this massive plan for concentration camps in the United States. You know, this is a year before Hitler came to power in Nazi Germany. And so she wasn't just sort of, you know, taking in the zeitgeist that was going on over Europe. She was really influencing it. And, you know, I had always heard about her saying thing, you know, calling human beings human weeds, and that her, her newspaper used as a mascot, a slogan on the mascot for, for a time, to create a race of thoroughbreds. So I always knew she was into eugenics. But the idea that um, she wanted to place you know, almost 20% of the country in, in concentration camps, I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone who's proposed something so evil in the history of the United States and yet has ma- maintained respectability. That they're giving out awards to people like Hillary Clinton or Martin Luther King uh, in her name Um, She's just, I guess, untouchable. You cannot bring this up about her, and that's what Kanye West is finding.
2: When we come back with Daniel Flynn, senior editor of the American Spectator, we'll get his perspective on Margaret Sanger's personal conduct and what it says about her policy vision. More right after this.
5: I'm just sitting here watching the wheel.
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Daniel Flynn, senior editor of The American Spectator, and uh, talking to him about how Kanye West... uh, Send a shot across the bow of Planned Parenthood and uh, the mythology surrounding Margaret Sanger. Uh, Daniel, talk to us a little bit about Margaret Sanger's personal behavior and what that speaks to in terms of her policy outlook.
12: Yeah, in in, um, around 1912, 1913, she got into some trouble because she she had a, um, 1914 or so, she had a, a, a publication called The Woman Rebel, and the way that her biographers report it is that um, Anthony Comstock, who was kind of like a public censor, or a morals crusader, uh, you know, chased her into exile because she was giving out birth control instruction. Now, those publications, which were destroyed uh, in the archives at NYU, were later found, and they don't have anything in there about birth control instruction. So that's just not true. I mean, she talked about she had birth control advocates. what she did do was advocate the assassination of john d rockefeller jr um which is interesting because this guy became her her biggest benefactor about a decade later of course now she went into exile um and she left her kids in america now this exile was basically a publicity stunt because she really wasn't gonna know she wasn't really facing all that much trouble um and she left her daughter behind and this went on for about a year shortly after her return um, she, well, she left all her kids behind, but shortly after her return, her daughter died. Uh, her son Noah later blamed the death of her daughter on her mother's departure. And, and that didn't stop her. You know, when, when her other kids, you know, she sent them off to boarding school at a very young age. You know, there's a poignant story in my book, Intellectual Morons, where, you know, she sets up a meeting with her son where she's going to come Easter weekend to go visit her son. And he's writing her all these plaintive letters, you know, please come, say you'll come. And so she says she'll come. And he sits there waiting for hours and hours at the train stop, and she never shows up. She never sends a telegram or anything. Um, she just was someone who did, want, did not want to have the responsibilities of motherhood. Um, and obviously as a wife, um, you know, as I noted in the piece, uh, she cheated on the guys that she cheated on her husbands with. So she wasn't very good at that either. Uh, you know. Just
2: going back to some of the things she outlined in her uh, Parliament of Population plan, the uh, you, you that's in your piece, inspector. The first step would be to control the intake and output of morons, mental defectives, epileptics. Uh, oh boy! Well, th- that would certainly. Um Uh, Raise some issues with uh, so many people who are involved in nonprofits that uh, aim to serve people with uh, disabilities, including developmental disabilities. Margaret Sanger had a plan for them. How does that square? And, boy, how does that square with sort of the right to die or the death with dignity movement of today, the euthanasia advocacy coming from the same population control ghouls? Uh, You also, uh, it just goes on, second step, take an inventory of the second group, such as illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes, dope fiends classify them in special departments under government medical protection, segregate them on farms and open spaces, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. And as you say, she also had nasty things to say about Jewish people and Italian families who who are, quote-unquote, filling insane asylums, unquote. Uh, You know, to me, this is a failure of conservatism. This is a failure of people who love this country that uh, we do not have a complete understanding of Margaret Sanger, that she uh, is still... Uh, It still has a bust in the Smithsonian is still uh, her name, still dons awards that politicians were supposed to take seriously, accept them uh, with a great uh, honor and plaudits. It's a it's a complete isn't it a complete failure on our part, a failure on uh, our abdication of K through 12, our abdication of academia. How does someone like this, one of the worst people in American history, continue on as somebody who's revered by at least a lot of Americans to the extent they even know who she is?
12: Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. The other part of it, I'm just surprised that there's been such a stubborn, real recalcitrant, um, recalcitrant uh people who are admirers in the media, uh, in Planned Parenthood. It, I think it's a little, for Planned Parenthood, this is tough because she founded the organization. It's hard to, to de-link her from the actual organization. And So what they do is just deny, deny, deny. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. She was someone who wrote and advocated against the whole idea of charity, uh, particularly for mothers, because she said, these are the exact people we should be discouraging from having kids. So why have these maternity centers? And so she she discouraged um, any kind of thing that was going to help mothers. And yet here you have a group called Planned Parenthood saying that, um, you know, she's a great lady. Um, She wasn't, she was a real sort of bitter social Darwinist and that, fact gets lost
2: in the discussion. Well, and, and also uh the, the, the whole notion that uh um, that that she that, that um, we we not only countenance her and we allow them to uh, continue to uh, bob and weave around her, as you say, deny, deny, deny. I would just love to hear a contextual, historical explanation for Margaret Sanger from the left, like uh, the ones they reject when it comes to our founding fathers and the like. That would, that would be interesting, but that requires somebody to actually put it between the eyes of people on the left, and we just don't have very many people who can do that, do we?
12: Yeah, I mean, I guess in this moment in history, you know, when you have— um, you know, statues of saints being torn down. You have uh, Christopher Columbus being torn down. George Washington. Um, you even have, you know, in my neck of the woods, Plymouth Plantation, which you know that there were. They recreate 1624 in, in uh, Plymouth Colony and in, in, in Plymouth uh, Plantation. There weren't no slaves in Plymouth Plantation 1694. I'm sorry, 1624. And yet, they're they're uh, changing the name of that. So the sensitivities are so great. That, you know, a place that re- re- recreates a moment in time where there are no slaves, they have to change the name because planta- plantation for some people means slavery. Now, in that context, I don't see how a person like, Plan- I'm, a person like Margaret Sanger is able to, um, you know, to, to last. Um, there has to be a canceling of her if there's a canceling of, of Plymouth Plantation, one would think. Uh, but that hasn't happened yet. And I think that's one of the reasons why Kanye West words about her in that Forbes interview so fascinated me because, you know, here's a guy who obviously has enormous influence, um, at least in the in in segment of Black Media that's really into rap music. I mean, he's probably the most famous rapper on the planet and you <laughs> um, listen to the crickets from, from some of these people. Yeah. They were either criticizing him, calling him a liar, or they just decided to ignore him. And, I you know, I realized as you guys said prior to, to the segment that, you know, this is a guy that's, you know, he's a little crazy. We all know that, but there is this character in Shakespeare, the wise fool that you see a lot, in uh, and, and As You Like It is kind of an example of that. Where you have a really foolish guy who, once in a while, you know, during the play, will say the most insightful things. And I think that's what you have in a guy like Kanye West. He's sort of a perfect example of that wise fool.
2: He is Daniel Flynn, senior editor of the American Spectator, author of Intellectual Morons and A Conservative History of the American Left. Daniel Flynn, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: Appreciate it. I'll be
0: This is the Dan Prof Show.
2: Welcome back, uh, Billy. You like uh, airplane stories, this is Captain? Over even more than gladiator movies. Uh, here's one for you. Alaska Airlines flight uh, had to make an emergency landing this past uh, Saturday night, uh, in route to uh, from in route from Seattle to Chicago. Uh, because um, one of the passengers started uh, threatening people, it went down like this.
5: Don't
1: move! Mr. Salucci, they know about you back home. Stay where you are! Joe, you don't want to blow that thing and kill all these innocent people? I don't care about them! Joe, listen to me. It's hopeless. No one's ever gotten away with a stunt like this before. Joe, the insurance is worthless now. I don't believe you. Joe, you gotta trust me. No one's going to hurt you. No one has to know what's your problem. No one has to know you're impotent.
5: Don't say that word!
2: And then Scraps the Dog catches the bomb midair in his teeth, and everybody is saved. Some of Sonny Bono's greatest acting work, even better than his time as a member of Congress. Uh, In uh, reality... The man on the flight from Seattle to Chicago demanded that uh, everyone except Jesus was a black man or he was going to kill everybody on board. Uh, the group, a group of passengers decided uh, they weren't going to focus on that. They were going to restrain the individual instead. And that's what they did, subduing the man. And uh, all is fine. Related uh, airline story. This is a even more fun one. Meet the company that sells your lost airplane luggage. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, uh, positively Dickensian name company, Unclaimed Baggage. Nestled in the small town of Scottsboro, Alabama, Unclaimed Baggage holds the distinction of being the nation's only retailer of lost luggage. It has a 40,000 square foot warehouse that holds thousands of treasures lost in transit, ranging from rare instruments to monogrammed engagement rings. Uh, this is remarkable. How it works is um, uh, about uh, 25 million bags checked by airlines of the 4.3 billion that they move around the world annually, but 25 million or three, one hundredths of a percent, uh, end up lost and not reunited with their owners. After 90 days, they're sold by the airlines. Chances are they're purchased by this company, unclaimed baggage, uh, the Amazon before it's time, a company started by, uh, Alabaman, uh, Roll Tide, named Hugo Doyle Owens, who um, was a ham radio aficionado and one day through radio chatter learned a bus company in Washington, D.C. had an enormous stack of unclaimed luggage it was looking to get rid of. In those days, unclaimed bags were often thrown away or auctioned off to local junk shops. But uh, Owens had a better idea, so he borrowed 300 bucks from his father-in-law, purchased all the luggage, and thus the company unclaimed baggage was born. So if you've lost a bag and you've never been reunited with it, perhaps you can at least get some of the Contents back. Check out Unclaimed Baggage in Scottsboro, Alabama. There you go. Leave you with news you can use on this edition of the Dan Prof. Show. Thank you for joining us. Please do so again tomorrow.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
2: You are fake news.